As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. Welcome to Android's Dungeon on CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting out of University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario campus. Normally, this is not normal. Some would say Abbey normal. Aberration. Don't know how well that came in because we are sitting for the first time in a long time in the same room together recording a show. I'm Jack and I'm joined by... And I'm Joel. Joel. How you doing, Joel? Pretty good. How was your night? Uh, momentous occasion. You know, we're all vaxxed up and anti-vaxxed. No, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, having a good time. Um, coming to the end of our Salt Marsh campaign. Be sad when it's over, but also kind of relieved. Well, well how long has it been like since we, we started this one? It's been one of these campaigns that, like, was it winter when we started this one? mid-september like we were outside here um prior to previous lockdowns lockdown one of three or four i can't keep track anymore and uh yeah i feel like we we started in person we all had to go home we went all went online you know shout out to roll 20 it's not a great platform but it's free and it served its purposes and i i actually all i started writing like a little uh tribute to it on the on the forum of our our campaign and then i I didn't finish it this week but maybe i'll finish it soon because finally we're through and we're able to play in uh, in a nice safe distanced five or less person backyard situation yes everything is up above board do not even think about trying to call in even troll uh i don't know like visits from who would even investigate something like this who do you call like the police say someone did something a while ago i have no proof no evidence of it and i can't even say they did something wrong but they should like i don't even know what sort of person would do something like that i've heard of the bylaw like popping by checking out parties and if if like complaints from a neighbor are legitimate you know you could get a fine and i know that they made this fines cheap to deter or sorry not cheap uh, very high to deter people like 850 dollars or something like that but i haven't actually heard of anybody getting one i think there were um some parties that happened uh like throughout the year that maybe some people got a little little saucy tried to jump the gun a bit and have something and they just pushed their luck too much like when you see too many cars parked in one space and bylaws always patrolling too so like they're bad enough with giving you a ticket if you're parked overnight let alone noticing a bunch of cars parked someplace but you're right though it's probably just all complaint based like if a neighbor decides to some old bait lady gets upset so like other people are having fun it's like i'm, I'm calling it in yeah. gotta stop them and i feel like all of those like situations where there were too many people and everything like that are highly publicized and they're just trying to make an example of people you know this could be you so watch out but like for an example our friend jason who's been um, played a lot of games with us in the past uh, he lives alone in a house and he's been very careful he's staying in his own place doesn't have anybody over not even his parents and his neighbors have a pool and every day there's different people over at that pool and they're you know cracking cold ones at 9 30 in the morning just Holy getting smokes. ready to go <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what they do for work but uh yeah they're just they're living it up so, so there's a certain amount of resentment i think right yeah definitely and so like to get back at them he's like you guys want to come over for a barbecue but let's not have any <laughs> let's not have any music and like only let two people come over and like we'll sit apart <laughs> yeah teach him a lesson by like quietly eating food together <laughs> uh android's dungeon is a show about games movies music whatever happened to us as we walked into the studio or in this case walked into our respective houses uh there's been a lot of stuff that's kind of happened to us as we've walked in our houses but uh this week we i think did we take a break last week no you weren't here so i recorded a show and uh we we did get to do we we do have some content this week not not forcing it not that we ever force it it's always natural and easy but this week we definitely have some content so joel 
What have you been playing recently? Just one board game. A whole lot of D&D. You know, I've played a little bit extra of the uh, Rime of the Frost Maiden and, uh, you know, repeats of Ghost of Saltmarsh. But let's talk about the big game that we tackled, which we've been waiting, what, like two years to play? Something like that. It's another Cole Worley, folks. The greatest designer right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's Oath. What do you think? Well, let's set up first before we get into what do we think, because uh, to establish some context, Oath is, uh, like Joel mentioned, it's a, another Cole Worley game. I think, I don't know if he's worked with his brother on this one, uh, Drew, and it is his follow-up to the smash hit, as far as I know. Like, I don't know the numbers. He may have sold three copies, but it seemed like he sold a million of, uh, of Root, which everyone was crazy about. And I don't know if it was before or after, uh, Pax Premier which was a reprint of a game he had already designed in, uh, in partnership with Phil Eklund, and PAX Premier 2.0 came out, and everyone was crazy about it, and I still think it's one of the best games I've played in a long time. It's just, like, super meaty, tons of great decisions, really thematically interesting, and Oath is the, the, the original sort of follow-up. His next big game, Kickstarted, of course, uh, tremendous success, one of those, you blink, and like you get the email saying, it's started, and you click on it, it's like, funded in one minute type deals, <laughs> and... Uh, Oath is so hot right now. It's it's super hot, and I think this is one of our rare hyper topical episodes because Oath is not even. I got shipping notice for my copy of Oath, so it should be here. I would imagine next week. If it showed up before the end of this week, I'd be shocked. But um, but then how did we play, Jack? We played via tabletop simulator, uh, which is I think when we st- when all this stuff happened, we were playing a lot of stuff by tabletop simulator. And I, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, I'll let Joel weigh in. But I think if I don't have to play a game on Tabletop Simulator anytime soon, I'm perfectly content. I'm okay to never play Tabletop Simulator again. I mean, I definitely think it was worth like $15 or whatever we paid for it because we probably dropped about 150 to 250 hours in various board games. I mean, I played 18 hours of High Frontier alone, but I guess that was on Vassal. Yeah. Um, but it is just like, it's just a 3d simulator. I know we've talked about it before, so I won't talk about it too much, but I'm done with it. You know, I'm ready to play in real life again. Now that I've got a taste after tonight of playing D and D in real life, I want to break out the games. I was talking to Kayla before we started about getting pandemic season two out. And then when it's done, damn, and I have pandemic season zero, we're ready to go, man. Tabletop simulator out yeah. humans in. Yeah. Down with the machine. <laughs> Down with the machine, become ungovernable, so on. Uh, so let's get back to Oath. We played on Tabletop Simulator. The And I think part of our issue with Tabletop Simulator in the past is that it is mostly fan-generated in the sense that some very dedicated individual with lots of time and focus has taken a game and interpreted it as best as they can into this essentially what is a physics simulation environment that is designed around recreating the tabletop experience with like with with cards and the table and dice and tokens and you can manipulate them as you see fit and depending on the quality of the uh, module uh, and depending on how much scripting has been done so somebody messing around with the code in the background it varies the quality of your experience and I've played a couple of good tabletop simulator games and it's become more common with kickstarters now for people to make formal projects for the game to test it out on their own which i think is is good and bad we can get at later but as far as i'm concerned this implementation was flawless as far as yeah. it's as good as you're going to get for and that's kind of a cole whirly uh, trademark is that like they did that with pax premier where they had like the official edition and it was flawless and you could watch actually cole and his brother playing games yeah. on tabletop simulator so they're definitely embracing the platform yeah so let's get into the meat and potatoes of it. Oath is a game that is themed around, imagine the world of Root, essentially, except maybe throw away the explicit sort of coin-esque elements and keep the art style because it's still leader games and it still has the same art designer, which I can't remember off the top of my head, that um, I'm going to lay my cards down a little bit. I find his art very cute, maybe a little garish at times and a little, you know, it's, it's very cutesy. But the theme itself is fairly heavy, and it's this simulation of, I think, I don't want to steal from it too much, but Space Biff, Dan Throw, says it's a game about history, essentially. 
and it is about every session is basically looking at an eon or an era of a kingdom or of the struggles of these rulers and various factions within this kingdom and it's not a legacy game strictly but it's designed around the idea of each play continuing onward from where you left off next time with new things being added and certain old things being not necessarily permanently removed but the sense of continuity throughout the experience uh, obviously we didn't get that in our initial game but what happens is that's you can i forget what it scales up to five or six you can play two players i don't even know if there's a solo version five or six would be crazy yeah um but one person always takes on the role of the chancellor which is basically the person that's ruling the kingdom currently and they have a specific goal of how to win and then there are three exiles or how many other players are uh, you're playing they're all considered to be uh, people on the fringe of society and i don't know and i could like, like i don't even have my copy we just played the tabletop simulator version i don't know people might start theoretically as citizens and be trying to usurp the uh, goana but everyone's trying to win through various victory conditions the chancellors i think is laid out right away what they have to do versus the exiles that have to kind of go through the game and try to figure out what they're going to do to win the game i don't think there's any blanket win condition for exiles is there um as an exile you can either get a vision which is like a certain card and you, i think in our four player game there are four cards the vision will tell you how to win or there's another way you can win. I, I think it's um, to have more territories than your than the king mm. at, by the end. And the king actually starts with three territories. So it's pretty difficult to accomplish. Especially like the more players you have, the tighter it's going to get where more people will want to control regions. In our game, actually, one of the players actually came pretty close. Had the same amount of territories as... The leader and then took an extra one and then the chancellor took it back so that's kind of the like the broad uh gist of the game it's mostly card uh, based it's a it's a weird mashup of area control tableau building um i don't want to say worker placement but you're kind of moving your person uh, yeah, Joel will get into this in a second because he got to he did played the whole thing. I had to disappear about I'd say three rounds into it. Um, it's a very odd game, and we'll get right into it with it, it's deeply confusing from at the beginning. It is maybe I don't know if it's more or less confusing than Root at the beginning. I think it might be uh, more confusing because with Root at least you can just focus on your own board. And you know what you're supposed to do and how you do it. Some are more complicated than others, but ostensibly, if you can just focus on your own thing and call it a day and just hope for the best. With Oath, everyone has the same capabilities, theoretically, but it's more Pax Pamirish in that theoretically everyone starts from the same beginning except for the chancellor but everyone is adapting and changing things but there's so many little symbols and little um little i don't want to say um changes to the rules but there's a lot of things spinning at once and it's very difficult to kind of at least learn organically from the get-go like if you look at the board and you set it up and you're staring at all these things and you're looking the flow of the game it, it's I, I think I've been, I keep going back to this and it sounds so bad, but I think 18xx feels so simple <laughs> by, uh, in well, comparison. You a dozen of them and then, you know, you, you, you have all these points of reference in 18xx and you have nothing to go from an oath. Well, that's the problem with these, like, these medium weight euros where every one of them is different. And they're not complicated, but they're different. And there's like this big hurdle to kind of get through at the beginning. And I'd say by the third round, I kind of understood generally the flow of the game. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I understood a sense that I was doing, but it was still like kind of for the first, I think it took us what, like two hours to get through two rounds of the game. Yeah, it was a long game. Uh, yeah. Like Jack said, he came in the middle and I think Jack, uh, actually previously outside of the show, but correctly assessed the game as kind of a perfect mix between Whirly's root and Whirly's Pax Pamir. And it makes perfect sense because Whirly originally wanted to set root in Afghanistan. Uh, Pax Premier is set in Afghanistan with sort of like the Russians and the British battling over control of it with the locals trying to do their best. But they never seem to do all that well. Um, but maybe that's just our, our, our choices as players. 
Um, Oath is definitely sort of like a child uh, of those two games. Uh, and it, it builds a lot of blends between them. And it is really challenging up front, like Jack said, to understand the rules. Um, but like all Cold Worldly games, I would say that, that, that they all have sort of, sort of, uh, like a cultural core to them. Like a, and a functional gameplay core to them. And once you understand what he's trying to get you to do in the game, mm -hmm. everything kind of just branches out from there. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you kind of understand. Okay, so there's going to be an early phase, there's going to be a mid phase, there's going to be end phase at each person's turn. And the early phase is kind of conditional. And then the middle phase is you get X actions. So in Pax Premier, you get two actions with the caveat, obviously, that if the suit is favored, you get more free actions, etc., etc. You can use actions on your card versus the actions when you play the card. Same thing happens in Oath. If you control a region in Oath, you can take any of the actions on the cards that are in that region. Now, each region has a limit on the amount of cards it can have. So some regions are bigger and can have three cards, and some can only have two, and some can only have one. But generally, every single one of these regions are going to have people's tokens just moving from place to place and searching for cards. They'll look at like the top three cards of a certain deck and then playing one that is favorable to that individual person. And then not only is it favorable to them in that region, say, for example, it gives them something that syncs up with their advisors, which they can place in front of them. Or it could be just an action that they happen to want to do on that one turn. And then everybody else can move there and start doing the same action. Um, but the key is that the map starts very sparse with only three regions, all controlled by the king, or in this case, the chancellor. And the exiles have to kind of move off of those regions, explore the rest of the world, flip over cards, find what's there, kill some bandits, and create little pockets of control and regions for themselves. And then once you control a region, you don't have to have your token on it, you can move off of it, but you can still take the actions on that region. And there's an economy. The economy is secrets. And what are, what are the coins? Favors. Favors. So you're, you're dealing with a combination of secrets and favors, and usually you spend secrets to get favors, you spend favors to get secrets, and you kind of build up an income. But the important thing to know is that favors, when you spend them, they're shaped like coins, go away at the end of your turn. Whereas secrets, if you spend them, come back to you at the end of your turn. Now there are still some cards that cause you to burn away your secrets, in which case you don't get them back. But for the most part, if you build up two or three secrets, you can actually use them as actions on your turn. And these are called free actions. In Cole Worley language, that means you take your two actions that you're allowed on a turn. And all of a sudden, if you've got three secrets, now you've got five actions, which is super valuable. In fact, I had one, uh, I think it was after you left, which everybody was complaining about, which is I put it in my advisors and it was these wolves and if I put a secret on the wolves, I could kill anything out on the map. And so people would try to take control of regions or, you know, place their soldiers places. And I would just say, no, that guy gets killed by wolves. And I didn't actually see any cards that could kill advisors. I know they exist. But once you place a card in front of you as an advisor, it's actually immune to the various attacks that can be taken out by regular actions. Um... Is this all, like, you're with it as far as these rules go? Huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, we Wanted to make sure because so. you, you didn't get quite through all of it, and it kind of, it really took shape after you left. Yeah. So what Jack did was really smart. He had a secret, basically, the exiles, I have to explain the, the ecology of the game. There's a chancellor, and he has really strong powers. And he controls three regions at the beginning, so he can take actions at every three of those regions, which people will start at and begin to play cards to immediately. So all of a sudden, the Chancellor has all of these actions and all these abilities at his thing. But if you've ever played Dune, you know that the Spacing Guild essentially can't really win the game on its own, but it just wants the game to end. 
that's basically what the chancellor is doing the chancellor is just trying to disrupt all the opportunities to win that other people are um, having ambitions towards until we get to turn five and then at turn five they roll and if there's a six the game ends and then they after turn six there if there's a five if turn seven if there's a three and if they make it all the way to turn eight the game just ends and if the if the chancellor still has a neutral land out in front of them they win otherwise you know their citizen who has more relics than them wins or the exile who has more territories than wins or the exile whose turn comes up and they've managed to make it from their turn to the next turn with their vision wins so what jack did was he had a vision which was basically have the banner of the secrets or banner of the deepest secret and and what you do is you pay a couple secrets and you put them on this secret banner and then you take that banner. And it's kind of like Longest Road in Catan. It's yours until someone takes it from you. And if somebody has the same amount of secrets, it doesn't matter. They have to have more. Once they put more on the banner, then it goes to them. And the people pass this banner around. And there's another one for coins, for favor. But basically, all he needed to do was have this banner at the start of his next turn. So it was the obligation of the Chancellor, which was me, to each turn thwart his goals and you can either attack the banner in which case each secret is a defense and you roll some dice to try to kill it or you can just have more secrets and trade it back now nobody wants jack to win so therefore the other exiles and the other citizens will actually make deals with the chancellor in order to make sure that the chancellor suppresses jack um and then at the same time, all of those other people are making deals in order to get themselves to win. So then the Chancellor has to make deals with them in order, or maybe even with Jack to make sure they don't win. And it's kind of one of those things where you're just looking around the table as the Chancellor. And it's like, what is everybody up to? <laughs> you know, you just everybody has sort of this card in their hand or maybe they've already played it where they have this secret goal to win the game. And, and there are like five or six actual different ways for the exiles and the citizens to win the game. And the Chancellor is just playing whack-a-mole, basically, and just going from player to player, just put, put. And he's got all this power and he's got all this influence, but he's only got so many moves in a turn. So he's got a, huh, which person am I going to stop from winning this time? And if two people are on the verge of winning, what do I do? How do I split my massive power? So it's actually a really brilliant simulation of probably what it was like to be the Roman Empire <laughs> or to be a various like powerful entity and yeah. seeing all these sort of fringe uh, interests of the, maybe so these lords right that are like um having their own ambitions and then outside of your borders you've got these raiders and everything like that and you're just like you're holding your head like oh these guys again <laughs> and you just you know you know and then you get like a famine or something and <laughs> anyway i thought the game was absolutely brilliant i'm gonna give you a little bit of time to talk about it you, you're showing you a little bit of surprise which I'm, I'm surprised at but maybe you didn't get through the whole thing what did you think of Oath? my surprise is that it, i i really enjoyed it I, I really liked the design but um i'm surprised you walked away with it saying it was brilliant i'm really impressed with that because i thought for sure after those cu first couple of rounds there i was i felt like oh geez and this is like uh <laughs> let's go through the motions like okay well i will say that the game is insanely hard to learn and like for people that are learning it together and don't have any experienced players teaching it oh boy you're gonna have a tough time for the first hour and a half but i feel like we were just the kind of group that was game for learning that and that once you get through the hurdles you can turn around and teach this to anybody pretty easily oh. <laughs> joel you have so much faith in people <laughs> uh yeah so like joel was saying he um it, it is it is very unique uh for sure i don't think there's i don't want to say there's any game not like it because pax mirror exists and i find it is and i don't want to denigrate this too much but it feels like maybe more complicated pax mirror somehow in that it's it's still because pax mirror it still has all the same beats you have four different groups there's no clear dominant faction. That's the only difference. Nobody starts off with a, a distinct sort of like king role, but you're you're still trying to curry the favor. 
of disparate groups make sure the group you're the favor you're occurring is the one that's predominant and then to ensure that you're the most favorable of those groups but it the, the same beats with regard to um I ha i'm investing in this idea i want to make sure i'm the best person here and i want to make sure nobody else swoops in and maybe knocks me out of these territories maybe kills some of my advisors like there's so many concepts that i think just kind of transpose little bits here and there but you take the the sections of root the area control aspects even though pax mirror i guess you could say is very similar area control stuff um and then you and but you have this set action list you can go through it's closer perhaps and as soon as i start thinking about it, to maybe the coin style of stuff um, where you have resources, and it's not necessarily your victory points, but you have to be very careful about how you expend these resources because something we didn't really talk about is that with in Oath, you have a set amount of actions you can do, and you're limited in two ways. The first is that in order to take these actions on, uh, I think most of these actions, you have to put items down on cards that are in your region. There's always a cost. So, um, And this cost shows up in the form of, I think, they, do they call it supply? Yeah, and so everyone starts with a similar amount of supply. I think I don't know if the Chancellor has more supply. It might be, I, I can't recall. They just have more troops. And that comes into play because simulating extension of supply lines and, and of armies, the more units you have on the board, the m less supply you have. So at the end of your round, the amount of troops you have still in your bag, you haven't deployed them yet, is given back to you in the form of extra resources. So if you have tons of troops on the map, you get less resources. If you have less troops on the map, you have more, I don't know, liquidity. Um, and also extra actions you don't spend kind of come back to you as well. But don't worry about that. That's We're not going to get into that. But each of these actions take between one and two. And if you're searching through the deck, I guess it can go up to four, theoretically. It's two, three, four, if at the top of the visions when enough been revealed. So you're limited in that sense, just in pure resources you have. You only have X amount of actions you can take total in your turn. Not only that, though, is that there are cards that are on the map. And like Joel was saying, in each region, so you have your little pawn, which is your leader. And wherever your leader is, that's where you have to put things down on these things on the map. I think they call them denizens, which are basically, if you want to abstract it down, it's it's people whose resources or favor you are kind of exploiting to take your, your actions. And that's why this game is kind of interesting, because if you can break it down thematically, there's a lot of stuff going on. That you kind of go, yeah, it makes sense. I, can, I get it. I get it. Um, but you have to be very, very careful. So you may have this wicked little engine in your mind, but you have to think, oh my god, okay, so I gotta spend two favor here, so that uses this card, but I have to make sure I use that card for something else first, so I'll move my resources over here, but I gotta spend my moves to go up to here, so I can spend my resources over here on these cards, because I can't double up on a card that's already got resources on it, and I'm out of moves, and oh god, my turn's over, and I didn't get what I wanted to do done. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, and there's tons of decisions, and everyone else is doing the exact same thinking in their head. Um, and like Joel was saying, though, money goes away, but if you spend secrets on stuff, they come back at the end of your turn. So they turn into this resource that's kind of regenerating, except for when the times when you have to burn said resource. Like, so things disappear. You take them away from the game. So I guess there, and there might be limited supply. I don't think it ever came up in what we're doing or if we're doing that properly, but... And in Pax Premier, uh, like similar like to Pax Premier, there's a set amount of coins in the game, and for some reason they, it's it's almost like an extra complication they didn't have to put in. But each card has a type, like a wolf type and a nomad type and a uh, a shelter type. And whenever you spend money on a certain card, it goes to the pile of that type. And then if that type isn't out, you know, um, you can end up having 17, 18 coins on a single pile. And then whenever you're trying to take money from, like, let's say the wolf pile, there's none there to take. And then you can't get any. And then you can't get any money. So what we ended up with was, like, 18 coins on the nomad pile. And nomad, co nomad cards were in short supply. So we had no way of actually getting additional currency. Yeah. So I want to I don't want to dwell too long on this because it is it is a game that I think is going to be extremely divisive. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people that may be getting into this and not knowing what they're getting into 
because I didn't know what I'm getting into, but I think we're a little more game than the average person to tolerate some weirdness or some extra rules overhead. But I think if people got caught up in the supposed simplicity of root, the idea of just kind of like, oh, it's, it's, it's cats, it's, it's little squirrels fighting, you know, it's cute. And you go to Oath, and all of a sudden that's been shaken off from you because that, that little pretension is gone, and you're now stuck in this weird simulation of, of rival clans trying to overcome petty grievances to knock down the king. And I think that's going to get into the last thing I want to talk about before we go to musical break and move on to D&D stuff, which is that uh, I've mentioned this and we di- I didn't get into it as much when I was playing, but I think Joel will, can speak to this too. But everything I've read about the game talks about kingmaking and how this game is... Uh, and and Nicole has, has, has said as much, I believe, in, in interviews or in, in conversations that kingmaking is in this game's blood. And it is all about, at a certain point, deciding, I'm not going to win. Who am I going to prop up? Who am I going to back? And a lot of games have this, and I think some of them kind of lean away from it and create some sort of like uh, abstract or some computer decision where it's like, I will support the player that would theoretically give me more points down the line. But I think this, based on my impression, this could feel very personal in in a lot of regard. And I think this might create some friction more so than other games. But I'll let you all speak because he finished it. Yeah, so I'll just give you an anecdotal story from our game. Basically what happened was Jack had left the game in the hands of our friend Y, and Y had done a good job of basically following Jack's instructions, which was to gather as many secrets as you could and take this banner of the secrets and try to hold it to the end of your turn. And the first time that he managed to do it and claim, okay, at the end of my next turn, I will keep this banner of the secrets, the Chancellor, me, came over with my massive armies and just crushed the banner, destroyed all the secrets, and took the banner for myself. But not to be deterred, Y came back and gathered more secrets, got the old oak tree, managed to gather a whole bunch of secrets, and then took the banner back. And we went back and forth like that a few situations, and then one turn I had to squash Michael, who had managed to create more have more regions than me and i couldn't allow him to win that way so i had to go off and fight in a in a war and you know why managed to amass even more secrets and so i got into this situation about three turns down the road where i just didn't have enough as the chancellor to stop why from winning why slash jack uh and that's the scenario where i turn to the other two players and i say look i have this thing that allows us to create binding deals i control the region so i can use the action but i need your cooperation and this is a situation which lends to the theme so perfectly because the theme is Everyone has their own ambitions to win the game and defeat the Chancellor, but they don't want anybody else to defeat the Chancellor, right? They want to be the one to win, and they want to keep the game going so that they have a chance to win. And so that's what happened was one of the guys said, I said, look, I'm short $2. That's all I need. I need two favor. If I get two favor, I can go trade for enough secrets to take the banner back, and the game will go on. Otherwise... Why will 100% win at the end of my turn? And so what are they going to do, right? They all have a chance to win. But then you get into this whole thing where Y said that Michael, because he had spent all of his resources on trying to defeat me with spreading out his army, had no chance of winning and therefore should not have helped me to stop him from winning. Which is, you know, whatever whatever way you want to interpret that. I don't think Y is necessarily wrong but maybe it's not a very nice thing to say to say to somebody you didn't have a chance (laughs) but at the same time what ended up happening was that michael did the thing that he believed was right which was to give me the coins in which case i went and crushed y and y again got the banner back at the end and was one turn away from winning but the chancellor rolled a four and the game ended meaning that the chancellor won the game And then, of course, like Jack was saying, at the end of the game, a whole bunch of 
things happen. Like we've talked about how complicated this game is and how insane it is to, to just like try to figure out how to play it. At the end of the game, there's more game. <laughs> Once the game ends, you move into the legacy phase. That magical word that everybody likes to hear when it comes to board games. This is a legacy game. And basically what happens is the chancellor or the winner and his citizens get special privileges in deciding what the next game will be like. They'll take out certain cards. They'll add new cards, right? They'll open more packages and stuff. And there will be new locations and new uh, denizens. And they'll decide the win condition for the next time. A lot of cool things. So obviously it encourages this like ongoing play, which why not play more than once after you've invested like at least an hour and a half in just learning how to get started. <laughs> uh, but yeah, honestly, Oath, like when was the last time we got excited about a game? I got excited about My City, but you haven't even played it yet because it's June and the second printing still hasn't been released. Um, but like that's two games in the last six months. What else has been new and exciting? Can you think of a single thing that's new? <laughs> not not a reprint of an 18xx Jack, <laughs> because those already existed long ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, the answer is nothing because you know games reached their high water mark in 2019. You heard it here second. <laughs> and with that, we're gonna take a little musical break. I think.
Welcome back to CFRU 93.3 FM. What you just heard was Future Club from Perturbator uh, off the album Dangerous Days from 2014. There's a new album out. I haven't listened to it yet. The Grill Zone? Yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously, Dangerous Day is much, much superior. <laughs> I can't even think of any Demon Days. Uh, it's got that, um, the classics, are, I, I don't care for the ending as much, but the beginning of it is just so, the, Joel hasn't, see what happens is typically, folks, is I just stop talking for a minute so I can look when I'm editing up the show and see a gap and I say that's where the music was and then I put in the music and then I talk about it briefly because I've heard most of these songs before. Don't give away the magic of the show. <laughs> the magic of the show. Uh, but uh, Future Club is fantastic because it, it has a great start and it just like the the beat drops in such a fantastic way that it's just like, where in that the first like little bit there was just like and it's just and then it kicks into high gear and it's fantastic there's this great little clip online of some guy because I think it's on Hotline Miami. It's part of the soundtrack, uh, either one or two. And it was this streamer, and uh, he's getting ready to do this. It's definitely Hotline Miami too, because there's windows everywhere. And uh, he's he's like he's getting ready to do the section. He's got double machine guns, and he's like, "All right, folks, check it out." And he puts down his these like goofy Kanye West style sunglasses, hits the voice modulator, and he says, "Let's go." And he steps forward just as the beat or the bass drops in the song and just gets shot immediately. <laughs> and there's just this moment where he's just staring ahead for a second and they just end the clip right there. And it's just for me, that's always what I think of. Anyway, Perturbator, Dangerous Days, fantastic album. Uh, next one's up. Uh, you'll probably hear it next week because uh, it is now. I don't know if it's officially out for a listen, but uh, I think I can stream it on Tidal at least. So. Uh, before we left for musical break, we were talking about a boot. Uh, oath which is you're going to hear a lot about it will it be as hot as root i'm skeptical i think it's going it's our it's it's very popular will people talk about it as much as root that's the question i think there's gonna be a lot of people bouncing off it because it is so strange and so different and frankly confusing if people stick with it i think there's gonna be a lot of neat stories kind of like even you could hear it when joel was describing his experiences especially at the end there and i think that's really i don't want to talk about it too much because we just did but I think what you described there as the chancellor, that's the what you're worrying about where it's like you're putting out fires and you spend all these efforts to put out one fire and all of a sudden there's this inferno behind you and you go, okay, here we go. <laughs> and you have to hope that maybe people play ball with you and hope that the, other, the person whose fire you just put out is going to help you put out the other fire while still considering the fact that I don't want you to keep winning. But it, it's negotiation. That's the issue. There's going to be lots of talking. And you have to be able to communicate and not take things too personally. But for a game that's all about kingmaking, we'll be interesting to see where it goes. But let's move on. Dungeons and Dragons, uh, evergreen of the show. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes to talk about it. Let's get going with uh, Joel speaking about Rhyme of the Frost Maiden because this is one of these weird little uh, campaigns Joel has going on the side that is... Um, I'll let him talk about it. Sure. So one of the things, I don't know if this is like canon to Rhyme of the Frost Maiden and essential to the game or what, or maybe this is just the DM style, but basically at the beginning of the campaign, before we even started, Session Zero, which is getting increasingly popular, which is kind of just like, instead of just jumping right into a campaign, meeting at a tavern and, and, and rolling with it, you have a session to kind of set things up. Here's the scene. Here's the world you're in. Here's the... Yeah, I think actually Sly Flourish, Flourish is one of the people that kind of coined the term. But basically, uh, you have kind of like... Not everybody knows what Keelland is. And, and it goes to Saltmarsh here in a kingdom called Keelland in the land of Greyhawk. And what does that mean? What, what is what is the history of the empire? What is the... Na like? what are the interests of the town and everything like that and then on top of that what are the characters and where do they come from so we had a session zero in um rhyme of the frost maiden where we learned about um what had happened basically there's this like massive curse and there's this god who's flying around in the sky every night and there's this perpetual winter we never get a proper sunshine uh, but the other thing he did was he met with each of us individually and he gave us a set of secrets. Secrets and lore regarding our backstory, which I got to assume is in the campaign. So why is this important to this week? Well, I'll tell you. 
my secret was that I was reincarnated from a gnome. But that gnome was killed by a doppelganger. A doppelganger who had adopted my exact look and personality and stole my life and killed me and basically like looted my wealth and headed off into the sunset. But I remembered it in dreams somehow. Dreams are great, a great tool in D&D as far as like expressing lore. Um, so what, that's something I knew. I also knew that I was, uh, you know, a traveler, a merchant, and that I had become part of a shipwreck and that I, you know, like barely survived, but my entire crew was killed. So those, those are the things I come into the campaign with. And then uh, we're fighting the first boss. And, and uh, the first thing that, the, that one of my party members does is he transforms into the boss's employer right in front of all of us. And pretends to be him and tries to negotiate with him, right? Tries to get the upper hand. And right at that moment, I didn't really think much of it. Oh, he's got some kind of, uh, you know, disguise self spell or something like that. But then the DM <laughs> takes me aside into a private chat and says, hey, hey, Joel, you see that? <laughs> you see how he turned into another thing like he's a doppelganger you know you remember your backstory how that doppelganger killed you in a past life and i'm like oh okay well you know we're fighting this boss so you know i'm just gonna go back and pretend everything's normal he's like oh okay okay let's go and so you know we fight the boss and there was a point where i think he got knocked out or something and i was thinking about just kind of like pushing him off the ice into the lake so i think about it, i was like i'll bide my time you know i want to do this real special like so what i did was <laughs> and i talked to the dm just before the campaign started and i didn't want the dm to think that i was just gonna kill the guy so what i said was i want to drug my party and then i want to interrogate him <laughs> and he bought it he was like yes let's do it so uh at the end of the big fight you know everybody's low on health low on health potions so i say you know what guys you guys head back i'm gonna stop by the apothecary i'm gonna pick up some health potions does anybody want any <laughs> and everybody was like yeah yeah i want some i want some right so you know i'm picking up two for this guy one for this guy and while I'm there, you know, I just type to the DM. I'm like, I want to buy a piece of sleeping potion. How much does it cost? Can I get two of them? Uh, and then I'm like, you know, I really ham it up. I go over to a, a thing. I'm like, we really got to celebrate defeating this first boss. I'm going to buy a really nice vintage. Okay. So I head over to the, to the wine shop or whatever it is. And I buy a really expensive bottle of wine. And I pop the cork and i smell it and you know i like really describe you know oh this is oh, this is, uh, oaky flavor yeah. <laughs> like that and i pour in the sleeping potions and then i cork it and then i bring it back to my party and they've heard all of this right but like all of all the sleeping potion stuff i type to oh, the dm so that it's all on the low key so i do i successfully drug drug my party with sleeping potions and they're all down they're all down. They're all unconscious, sleeping deeply. Wait, wait, hold on. What did the DM say for this person? He gave him a constitution save. Yeah. They failed immediately, but he was going to allow them to keep doing it every time they take a drink until they failed. I didn't drink, but he knew that. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as they were both unconscious, this was my favorite part. I took my Iku, which is an ore that has been fashioned to a quarterstaff in DM, in D&D. And I put it under the neck of the guy that was the doppelganger. And I pulled back and I began attacking. <laughs> and then action surge. <laughs> and I did four attacks at him and I got a natural 20. And he, I brought him to exactly one health. And then true, true to the DM, you know, I was starting to feel a little guilty about just killing this guy straight off. I started questioning him very aggressively. Said... How did you transform? 
you're a doppelganger. Do you remember the gnome? And I made up the name of the gnome. I think it was like Kevin or something. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I don't remember. I'm too young to have done that. It wasn't me. And he rolled a deception check and he passed the deception oh. check. So I know it was him, Roger. <laughs> I know it was him. But my character is like, well, I guess I believe you. Uh, but, you know, do you know any other doppelgangers? Anything like that? Like, are you part of a cabal of doppelgangers? And he's like, oh, I don't know any other. Well, I'm like, and so I'm like, well, you're the only doppelganger I know. So I'll give you a chance. I'll flip a coin. And if it's a, if it's a tails, you live and it's a heads, you die. And at this point, the other guy who's been listening the whole time says, can I make a perception check to try to wake up from all this noise? Perception check. And the DM let him do it. And he got like a 23. So whatever. He let him wake up. He tries to grapple me. Gets a natural one. Oh. <laughs> so I flip my coin. He gets a three. I start hacking away. Boom, boom. Wow. Knock him out. Second attack, melee attack. Two fails to a death save. He's one death save away from true death another guy heals him for 19 <laughs> health 19 i sit there i just i just sit down i tell it i just sit down dejected i put my head down i'm just annoyed <laughs> and and the other guy yeah saved his life which you know what are you gonna do at least at least the guy gets a chance but i'm gonna be watching out for this guy so you know. I'm, I'm about the party <laughs> so what do you think what do you think of like team kills overall it's tricky i i don't know it's it seems like it it seems inherently destructive in a sense that's like you you are trying to destroy any sense of camaraderie between these people and there's no like my issue is that if if we did a campaign like that it'd be tough for me to put it down and say like, oh, okay, it was part of your character versus like, oh, he's just being a dick. He just decided to like get bored and just like TK people because there's nothing going on. Yeah, I honestly don't know how much patience these people have for me anymore. <laughs> I That's on the DM. I'm curious if Rhyme of the Frost Maiden has that built in or if you read something somewhere where it's like, oh, it, it's fun to create like murderous antagonism between yeah. <laughs> party members. Inter-team conflict. Yeah. Makes it more entertaining. I am really excited to see where this goes in the future because I'm concerned about the longevity of your... Uh, I, I can't believe the guy survived, though. That's something else. Yeah. But the idea of, like, I don't know, it's oddly generous to let somebody wake up after he's been... Like, it's not like he was smacked. Not like he was... Drugged. He was deliberately drugged. He drank the sleeping potion. It's not even like he was, like enchanted or something where he's like resisting it resisting it and he's like some guy's being smacked to death next to him it's not like there's like a, a rock concert going on it's like roll to see you you don't wake up at the rock concert it's like no it's not it's that's something else. i don't know i would never i don't as much as i love screwing with people and like i, I like the the idea behind it it seems like it's just it goes against the idea of of D D. like you're you're all on a team and the idea of somebody like being against you or betraying you at the team seems it's maybe for an end game thing it'd be fun but for like what how many sessions in are you uh we are level two i think but oh <laughs> we're like still five sessions in we just fail a lot yeah, that seems rough <laughs> That's a, anyway i don't know <laughs> i don't know much about this all right so let's move on so that was rhyme of the frost man we've got five minutes left why don't we talk about your tuesday session because um, unless you want to jump right to the one we just did, it's up to you. No, let's say let's save like the current campaign. It's getting real cool and dark and and aberration, abolethic. <laughs> yeah, we've got a guy who begins with yog involved now, so you know we're getting serious. But uh, yeah, I got some funny things to tell the Sawagin Slayers. You guys are the Barnacle Buddies. I love your name. The Sawagin Slayers is a bit too head on. Oh, Yogg's off, off. Yeah, there he is. Um, in Sawagain Slayers, they made it to the Abbey Isle. They got onto the island. They believed everything that the cultists said. And they went into the Winding Way and they fought some statues. Now, it went pretty well at first. You know, I, I, I like to ham up the whole passive perception thing. And say, oh, yeah, you see a trap. You see a trap. You see a trap. And that way they don't just, like, run into acid pits. The most hilarious thing is that... Seth saw a trap, 
knew it was a trap, walked into it anyway. Because there was a the the ghost the specter uh, fought, guided him that way, and he was like, "Well, maybe we're supposed to go through it." Okay. Well, it's like, "Well, no, you fall into an acid pit." <laughs> yeah, but that's one of those things. That's like the coin toss Gary Gygax bullshit, where it's like, I, "The ghost is your friend. How are you not supposed to know?" But it was like the third trap that the ghost had tried to put. The first two were bad. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third one leads to 3,000 gold or something. Yeah. It was like, I think in the Tomb of Horrors, which was like just notoriously painful, there was a a section where there were like uh, pews and you opened the front pew and it was like a poison cloud or whatever. But the all of the back pews had like thousands and thousands of gold in them. It's like, how are you supposed to know that? No reason. Anyway. Um, so they, they did pretty well against the traps and the, and the, and the, um, they got the hammer of pain from the, uh, statue, the crystal statue Minotaur, but then they came across the vampiric jade statue and it, the vampiric jade statue was killed so quickly in your campaign that it never really had a chance to get going. But in our, in this campaign, they decided they really wanted to heal each other, and all of a sudden, the vampiric jade statue really came into its own. It's kind of a boss because it's got legendary actions, but its thing is, it goes around and it bites everybody, and once everybody is bitten, they're cursed, and once they're cursed, on her turn, she can just drain five health from them. Straight five health. It's not a lot of health, but it's everybody. It's a legendary action. She gets three in between of each of her turns. So what happened in this situation was she bit, she did her little like little misty teleport thing. She bit another person. Once all four people were bit, she just began to drain them. Drain, 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 drain. And one guy went unconscious. And then another guy got unconscious. And then a third. And then that, they brought that guy back up. And then the third person got unconscious again. And then the other guy got... Everybody had been unconscious at one point in the fight. The barbarian who's raging and frenzying and taking half damage has three hit points and everybody else is unconscious. And I'm in a situation where like, if I kill these guys, what do I do after that? And honestly, I, maybe I should have. But what I did was I basically just skipped all of those legendary actions, gave it, went all the way through. She misses her attack. It's your turn. Okay, now you kill it. But she had... 15 health for four of their entire turns and they didn't attack her. They were just healing each other. So what am I supposed to do? Right? You guys literally, you guys probably killed this statue in, in two rounds. It had like 70 health. You know. Does it take half damage? No. It takes more damage to force attacks. And I think you guys got lucky with some magic missiles. I don't know what to say. But there are a lot of ways to die in 5e. You just got to be dumb enough. We don't have much time left. I think Joel will agree. It's the problem with D&D is that, well, there's a lot of problems. But the, uh, the one of the big ones is that there's this, there's this metagame element where, like, if your friend is dying next to you, you're obviously going to want to heal him. But action economy is supreme. Mm-hmm. And it's, healing is such a waste of time unless you can pull that person out and it's a, it's great if you can bring them back in. All of a sudden, now you're getting two extra, or they're doing whatever they were going to do before, and now they're doing more shit. But if you are just wasting your turn, like if so, it's like a classic computer game thing where it's like there's an enemy with one health and he's just doing crazy things. Am I going to heal somebody and end the count and let the, or am I going to kill that guy and end the encounter and we're we're all okay? And it makes, per- yeah, I'm going to smack the, the crap out of this guy. It doesn't make any sense. Versus like, well, let's spend my turn to bring this guy back with six health. And then just like, <laughs> well, that's the end of that round. Because like, I think the problem is that with, if D&D, if, if, there was, if using a healing potion or doing something like that didn't count as like a, it was like a bonus action or something. I don't know. Like maybe it'd be different. But versus a whole turn, it doesn't make any sense. When you can, in a world where, what level are they? Level five, six. The amount of damage you can do at level five or level six just completely outweighs yeah. bringing somebody back at that point. So it's like you can heal eight hit points or do like twenty-two. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. Uh, all right, we're gonna end it there. 
fast show, lots of content. Uh, we'll be back next week. I don't know. We, we still got some more salt marsh. I think we got another few sessions of salt marsh to go. We're gonna have a very epic finale. Things are heating up. We're gonna talk about it later. But on that note, we're gonna finish this here. Thank you for listening. Android Dungeon, CFRU ninety three FM. You can check us out on Instagram. Android Dungeon, check us on Twitter. AD Radio, CFRU. Check us out on all your favorite podcasting websites. And, of course, at CFRU.ca, in case you're not listening on the radio, like some sort of person who listens to the radio. Who are you? I'm Jack. I'm Joel. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Bye.